Section One of the Underground Railroad, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Underground Railroad, Part One, by William Still. Section One. Seth Conklin, Part One. In the long list of names who have suffered and died in the cause of freedom, not one, perhaps could be found whose efforts to redeem a poor family of slaves were more Christ-like than Seth Conklin's, whose noble and daring spirit has been so long completely shrouded in mystery. Except John Brown, it is a question whether his rival could be found with respect to boldness, disinterestedness, and willingness to be sacrificed for the deliverance of the oppressed. By chance one day he came across a copy of the Pennsylvania Freeman, containing the story of Peter Sill, the kidnapped and the ransomed. How he had been torn away from his mother when a little boy six years old. How, for forty years and more, he had been compelled to serve under the yoke, totally destitute as to any knowledge of his parents' whereabouts. How the intense love of liberty and desire to get back to his mother had unceasingly absorbed his mind through all these years of bondage. How, amid the most appalling discouragements, prompted by his undying determination to be free and to be reunited with those from whom he had been sold away, he contrived to buy himself. How, by extreme economy, from doing overwork, he saved up five hundred dollars, the amount of money required for his ransom, which, with his freedom, he, from necessity, placed unreservedly in the confidential keeping of a Jew named Joseph Friedman, whom he had known for a long time and could venture to trust how he had further toiled to save up money to defray his expenses on an expedition in search of his mother and kindred, how, when this end was accomplished, with an earnest purpose he took his carpet-bag in his hand, and his heart throbbing for his old home and people, he turned his mind very privately towards Philadelphia, where he hoped, by having notices read in the colored churches, to the effect that, forty-one or forty-two years before two little boys were kidnapped and carried south, that the memory of some of the older members might recall the circumstances, and in this way he would be aided in his ardent efforts to become restored to them. And, furthermore, Seth Conklin had read how, on arriving in Philadelphia, after traveling sixteen hundred miles, that almost the first man whom Peter Still had sought advice from was his own unknown brother, whom he had never seen or heard of, who made the discovery that he was the long-lost boy whose history and fate had been enveloped in sadness so long, and for whom his mother had shed so many tears and offered so many prayers during the long years of their separation. And finally, how this self-ransomed and restored captive, notwithstanding his great success, was destined to suffer the keenest pangs of sorrow for his wife and children, whom he had left in Alabama bondage. Seth Conklin was naturally too singularly sympathetic and humane not to feel now for Peter and especially for his wife and children, left in bonds as bound with them. Hence, as Seth was a man who seemed wholly insensible to fear, and to know no other law of humanity and right, than whenever the claims of suffering and the wrong appealed to him, to respond unreservedly, whether those thus injured were amongst his nearest kin or the greatest strangers, it mattered not to what race or clime they might belong. He, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, owning all such as his neighbors, volunteered his services, without pay or regard, to go and rescue the wife and three children of Peter Still. The magnitude of this offer can hardly be appreciated. It was literally laying his life on the altar of freedom for the despised and oppressed whom he had never seen, 
whose kinsfolk even he was not acquainted with. At this juncture even Peter was not prepared to accept this proposal. He wanted to secure the freedom of his wife and children as earnestly as he had ever desired to see his mother, yet he could not, at first, hearken to the idea of having them rescued in any way suggested by Conklin, fearing a failure. To J. M. McKim and the writer, the bold scheme for the deliverance of Peter's family was alone confided. It was never submitted to the Vigilance Committee, for the reason that it was not considered a matter belonging thereto. On first reflection, the very idea of such an undertaking seemed perfectly appalling. Frankly, he was told of the great dangers and difficulties to be encountered through hundreds of miles of slave territory. Seth was told of those who, in attempting to aid slaves to escape, had fallen victims to the relentless slave power, and had either lost their lives or been incarcerated for long years in penitentiaries, where no friendly aid could be afforded them. In short, he was plainly told that without a very great chance the undertaking would cost him his life. The occasion of this interview and conversation, the seriousness of Conklin, and the utter failure in presenting the various obstacles to his plan, to create the slightest apparent misgivings in his mind, or to produce the slightest sense of fear or hesitancy, can never be effaced from the memory of the writer. The plan was, however, allowed to rest for a time. In the meanwhile, Peter's mind was continually vacillating between Alabama, with his wife and children, and his new-found relatives in the north. Said a brother, If you cannot get your family, what will you do? Will you come north and live with your relatives? I would as soon go out of the world as not go back and do all I can for them, was the prompt reply of Peter. But here obstacles quite formidably lay in the way. Alabama laws utterly denied the right of a slave to buy himself, much less his wife and children. The right of slave masters to free their slaves, either by sale or emancipation, was positively prohibited by law. With these reflections weighing upon his mind, having stayed away from his wife as long as he could content himself to do, he took his carpet-bag in his hand and turned his face toward Alabama to embrace his family in the prison-house of bondage. His approach home could only be made stealthily, not daring to breathe to a living soul, save his own family, his nominal Jew master, and one other friend, a slave, where he had been, the prize he had found, or anything in relation to his travels. To his wife and children his return was unspeakably joyous. The situation of his family concerned him with tenfold more weight than ever before. As the time drew near to make the offer to his wife's master to purchase her with his children, his heart failed him through fear of awakening the ire of slaveholders against him, as he knew that the law and public sentiment were alike deadly opposed to the spirit of freedom in the slave. Indeed, as innocent as a step in this direction might appear, in those days a man would have stood about as good a chance for his life in entering a lair of hungry hyenas as a slave or free-colored man would in talking about freedom. He concluded, therefore, to say nothing about buying. The plan proposed by Seth Conklin was told to Vina, his wife, also what he had heard from his brother about the Underground Railroad, how, that many who could not get their freedom in any other way, by being aided a little, were daily escaping to Canada. Although his wife and children had never tasted the pleasures of freedom for a single hour in their lives, they hated slavery heartily, and being about to be so far separated from husband and father, they were ready to assent to any proposition that looked like deliverance. So Peter proposed to Vina that she should give him certain small articles, consisting of a cape, etc., which he would carry with him as memorials, 
and, in case Conklin or anyone else should ever come for her from him, as an unmistakable sign that all was right, he would send back, by whoever was to befriend them, the cape, so that she and the children might not doubt but have faith in the man, when he gave her the sign, cape. Again Peter returned to Philadelphia, and was now willing to accept the offer of Conklin. Ere long, the opportunity of an interview was had, and Peter gave Seth a very full description of the country and of his family, and made known to him that he had very carefully gone over with his wife and children the matter of their freedom. This interview interested Conklin most deeply. If his own wife and children had been in bondage, scarcely could he have manifested greater sympathy for them. For the hazardous work before him he was at once prepared to make a start. True, he had two sisters in Philadelphia for whom he had always cherished the warmest affection, but he conferred not with them on this momentous mission. Full well did he know that it was not in human nature for them to acquiesce in this perilous undertaking, though one of these sisters, Mrs. Supley, was a most faithful abolitionist. Having once laid his hand to the plough, he was not the man to look back, not even to bid his sisters good-bye, but he actually left them as though he expected to be home to his dinner as usual. What had become of him during those many weeks of his perilous labors in Alabama to rescue this family was to none a greater mystery than to his sisters. On leaving home he simply took two or three small articles in the way of apparel, with one hundred dollars to defray his expenses for a time, this sum he considered ample to start with. Of course he had very safely concealed about him Venus Cape, and one or two other articles which he was to use for his identification in meeting her and the children on the plantation. His first thought was, on reaching his destination, after becoming acquainted with the family, being familiar with southern manners, to have them all prepared at a given hour for the starting of the steamboat for Cincinnati, and to join him at the wharf, when he would boldly assume the part of slaveholder, and the family naturally that of slaves, and in this way he hoped to reach Cincinnati direct, before their owner had fairly discovered their escape. But alas for southern irregularity, two or three days' delay after being advertised to start was no uncommon circumstance with steamers, hence this plan was abandoned. What this heroic man endured from severe struggles and unyielding exertions, in travelling thousands of miles on water and on foot, hungry and fatigued, rowing his living freight for seven days and seven nights in a skiff, is hardly to be paralleled in the annals of the Underground Railroad. The following interesting letters, penned by the hand of Conklin, convey minutely his last struggles, and characteristically represent the singleness of heart which impelled him to sacrifice his life for the slave. Eastport, Mississippi, February 3, 1851. To William Still. Our friends in Cincinnati have failed finding anybody to assist me on my return. Searching the country opposite Paducah, I find that the whole country fifty miles around is inhabited only by Christian wolves. It is customary, when a strange negro is seen, for any white man to seize the negro and convey such negro through and out of the state of Illinois to Paducah, Kentucky, and lodge such stranger in Paducah jail, and there claim such reward as may be offered by the master. There is no regularity by the steamboats on the Tennessee River. I was four days getting to Florence from Paducah. Sometimes they are four days starting from the time appointed, which alone puts to rest the plan for returning by steamboat. The distance from the mouth of the river to Florence is between 305 to 345 miles by the river, by land 250 or more. I arrived at the shoe shop on the plantation, 1 o'clock, Tuesday, 28th. 
William and two boys were making shoes. I immediately gave the first signal, anxiously waited thirty minutes for an opportunity to give the second and main signal, during which time I was very sociable. It was rainy and muddy. My pants were rolled up to the knees. I was in the character of a man seeking employment in this country. End of thirty minutes gave the second signal. William appeared unmoved. Soon sent out the boys. Instantly sociable. Peter and Levin at the island. One of the young masters with them. Not safe to undertake to see them till Saturday night. When they would be at home. Appointed a place to see Vina in an open field that night. They to bring me something to eat. Our interview only four minutes. I left. Appeared by night, dark and cloudy. At ten o'clock appeared William. Exchanged signs. Led me a few rods to where stood Vina. Gave her the signal sent by Peter. Our interview ten minutes. She did not call me master, nor did she say sir, by which I knew she had confidence in me. Our situation being dangerous, we decided that I meet Peter and Levin on the bank of the river early dawn of day, Sunday, to establish the laws. During our interview, William prostrated on his knees and face to the ground, arms sprawling, head cocked back, watching for wolves, by which position a man can see better in the dark. No house to go to safely. Travelled round till morning, eating hoe-cake which William had given me for supper. Next day going around to get employment. I thought of William, who is a Christian preacher, and of the Christian preachers in Pennsylvania. One watching for wolves by night, to rescue Vina and her three children from Christian licentiousness, the other standing erect in open day, seeking the praise of men. During the four days waiting for the important Sunday morning, I thoroughly surveyed the rocks and shoals of the river from Florence, seven miles up, where will be my place of departure. General notice was taken of me as being a stranger, lurking around. Fortunately, there are several small grist-mills within ten miles around. No taverns here, as in the north. Any planter's house entertains travellers occasionally. One night I stayed at a medical gentleman's, who is not a large planter. Another night at an ex-magistrate's house in South Florence, a Virginian by birth, one of the late census-takers, told me that many more persons cannot read and write than is reported. One fact, amongst many others, that many persons who do not know the letters of the alphabet have learned to write their own names. Such are generally reported readers and writers. It being customary for a stranger not to leave the house early in the morning where he has lodged, I was under the necessity of staying out all night Saturday to be able to meet Peter and Levin, which was accomplished in due time. When we approached I gave my signal first. Immediately they gave theirs. I talked freely. Levin's voice, at first, evidently troubled. No wonder, for my presence universally attracted attention by the lords of the land. Our interview was less than one hour. The laws were written. I go to Cincinnati to get a rowing boat and provisions, a first-class clipper boat to go with speed, to depart from the place where the laws were written, on Saturday night of the first of March, I to meet one of them at the same place Thursday night, previous to the fourth Saturday from the night previous to the Sunday when the laws were written. We were to go down the Tennessee River to some place upon the Ohio, not yet decided on, in our rowboat. Peter and Levin are good oarsmen. So am I. Telegraph station at Tuscumbia, twelve miles from the plantation, also at Paducah. Came from Florence to here Sunday night by steamboat. Eastport is in Mississippi. Waiting here for a steamboat to go down, paying one dollar a day for board. 
Like other taverns here, the wretchedness is indescribable. No pen, ink, paper, or newspaper to be had. Only one room for everybody, except the gambling rooms. It is difficult for me to write. Vina intends to get a pass for Catherine and herself for the first Sunday in March. The bank of the river where I met Peter and Levin is two miles from the plantation. I have avoided saying I am from Philadelphia, also avoided talking about Negroes. I never talked so much about milling before. I consider most of the trouble over till I arrive in a free state with my crew the first week in March. Then we'll have to be wiser than Christian serpents and more cautious than doves. I do not consider it safe to keep this letter in my possession, yet I dare not put it in the post office here. There is so little business in these post offices that notice might be taken. I am evidently watched. Everybody knows me to be a miller. I may write again when I get to Cincinnati, if I should have time. The ex-magistrate, with whom I stayed in South Florence, held three hours' talk with me, exclusive of our morning talk, is a man of good general information. I was exceedingly inquisitive. I am from Cincinnati, formerly from the state of New York. I had no opportunity to get anything to eat from seven o'clock Tuesday morning till six o'clock Wednesday evening, except the hoe-cake, and no sleep. Florence is the head of navigation for small steamboats. Seven miles, all the way up to my place of departure, is swift water and rocky. Eight hundred miles to Cincinnati. I found all things here, as Peter told me, except the distance of the river. South Florence contains twenty white families, three warehouses of considerable business, a post office, but no school. McKiernan is here, waiting for a steamboat to go to New Orleans, so we are in company. End of section one.